Telecast, the TV industry news review. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby, and welcome to this week's Telecast. It's a Real Screen Summit special this week as we look at the world of unscripted and what the year holds for factual TV. I'm speaking with Andre Singer, OBE, Chief Creative Officer at Spring Films, Lilla Hurst, Joint MD at Drive, and Real Screen Editor and Content Director Barry Walsh. Plus, it's not just about execs behind the camera, as I catch up with Special Forces instructor and star of SAS Who Dares Wins, Jason Fox. It's all coming up on this week's telecast. Don't forget to sign up for our new free newsletter called Telecast Plus. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week you may have missed, exclusive insight and opinion, and the secret producer, our real-life exec who reports anonymously from the front line of TV production. It's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. That's telecast-podcast.com. This week, I'm joined by two well-known and respected executives from the world of Unscripted, Lilla Hurst and Andre Singer OBE. Welcome to the show, Andre and Lilla. Good to be here. Hi, Justin. Thanks for coming on the show. Andre, starting with you, if we may, first of all, congratulations on the OBE. You were awarded at the end of last year for services to anthropology and the documentary film industry. I think it was... Um... A matter of having collected enough cornflake tops and, and being old. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real achievement and, and, and congratulations is, of, of course, very well deserved. Obviously, there's, there's an enormous amount I'd like to ask you, Andre, but we're limited on time. First of all, I wanted to kick off with one of your most recent projects, Fireball. You're a longtime collaborator with Werner Herzog of course, working as producer, I think, for 14 productions together? Yeah, it's now 32 years. I think it's 15 or 16 productions, really. Wow. And Fireball is your latest feature documentary that debuted late last year on Apple TV+. I'm a big fan myself, so I really enjoyed the film. Now, you're an incredibly experienced director yourself. How do you decide how you work together on each project, who directs, who produces on projects, and what's the secret of such a long-time collaboration between the two of you? Oh, it's a a very simple secret. You just do what Werner tells you to. (laughs) (laughs) As I say, I've worked a long time with him, and uh, it's only one occasion when I jointly directed the, the film we did on Gorbachev, um, and that was basically a film that had come to me and I invited Werner to join me. Um, all the other films are really Werner's. And I think Werner likes a certain amount of stability in his life. And um, he's had a team of people around him, including his brother, um, who really produces most of his work, and me, and Peter Zeitlinger, cameraman, and so on. And we all tended to work on a lot of his programs, not all of them, but a lot of them as we've gone through the years. And the secret, I think, is that Werner has, he's wired differently to the rest of us. Um, He thinks a film in his head. I mean, he he continues to amaze me every time I work with him. He knows exactly what his film is going to look like 
before he really goes into it. Remarkably, you end up with something that he's already almost foretold you was going to be there. And if you have that kind of trust in a filmmaker, then most of our roles are really to smooth the path, to help him along the way. He listens. He sometimes takes note of what you say. Sometimes he doesn't. In the end, I've never really been disappointed with uh, the end result of them. It's been, it's been a fantastic 32 years. You're also President Emeritus of the Royal Anthropological Institute, and you've been involved in that field for many years. Can you tell us how the field of anthropology has informed your filmmaking? I was an anthropologist before I became a filmmaker, so that's really where the links came. I was hugely fortunate that my first television experiences came via the sadly no longer existing Disappearing World series that Granada Television used to run, and I took over running it back in the 80s. And I was there because I was an anthropologist, not because I was a filmmaker. And I trained up as a filmmaker through those films, those anthropological films. I think it's probably true to say that it's not that anthropology informs my filmmaking. It's just that I've been always interested in anthropology, fascinated by it, trained up in it, if you like. And when there is an opportunity to do films that are relevant to anthropology, I jump on them and try and do them. I think it would be rather pretentious for me to say that the films I make are shaped by anthropology. It's more that I've been able to follow two careers in parallel. And when I can, I've been involved in a lot of films that are anthropological, you know, films about witchcraft, films about, um, you know, we did a series called Divine Magic about um, magic and, and witchcraft um, and so on, things like that. I really enjoyed Fireball, as I say, and, and I know you're only going to be positive, but I imagine many fellow filmmakers would be interested to know what it's like working with Apple because there's so few people are doing it. Is it notably different from working with any of the other streamers, for example? I can't really say it was that different, but it was unique in that this was one of the very first films they commissioned or they bought into, really. The plus side of working with Apple is, of course, number one, they have good money and they pay for what they want. The bad side of it, well, uh, bad is too strong a word, the, the sort of negative part of it is that they were really learning on the job. So they had huge teams of people working at every level in terms of promotion, advertising, uh, editorial, and so on. And because they hadn't really got the experience of having a system already there in place, it meant that everybody wanted to feel that they were contributing. And that meant we had a lot of bureaucracy, which we eventually ironed out. But it took it took my team a huge amount of work, really a lot of it relatively unnecessary. And gradually, as we got to know each other and knew what we were doing, it became easier and easier. And by the end of the production, it, it was fine. But it was it was a learning curve, I think, for both parties. And you've probably, in the process, created the template then for how to work with a production company for Apple. You know, I'm 
a huge fan of the um, the sort of this this whole new wave of uh, organizations like uh, Netflix and Apple and um, Disney and so on coming on board the uh, nonfiction world because it's it's rejuvenated everything we've been doing. It's very competitive, but uh, on the other hand, it's actually quite exciting. I mean, this is something I think we'll probably discuss again later, but working with them, I think, is a learning curve for everybody, whether you're a production company or or you're sort of pitching ideas or you're you know, some of the distributors who are kind of balancing between the streamers and the traditional broadcasters. I think it's gradually falling into place. And it's. I think for most of us, the question is, will it last? Will it change? Um, will the appetite for the nonfiction end of the business stabilize and grow? And I think these are all things we're all grappling with as we go along. Apple is just, I think, one of the biggest. And hopefully um, their experiences are, are going well. I mean, we read a lot about the big projects they're now following through with. It feels good. I mean, I'm very pleased to have been one of the first to have dealt with them. It's going to be fascinating, as we've seen, the uh, enormous jumps in subscriptions to all of these services over the past year. And obviously, we're going to start seeing some churn as we the, the winter, the recession, everything else starts to bite as we go through 2021. So it'll be fascinating to see how they all work from a content perspective and how that affects things. But talking about spring films, your business that you founded, how has COVID affected the work that you do in the last year and, and your projects recently? I think like all of us, it's been difficult, rather harrowing, having to both look outwards and inwards. We were directly affected quite badly at the beginning um, in March because our prison series, which was one of our more successful projects we had with Channel 4, we had started filming the third series of prison in Durham, and then suddenly there was the shutdown. I understand fully why they did it, but it was a major blow to us. Channel 4 then axed all programs at that moment in the non-fiction area that they had on their books. So it wasn't a matter of postponement. It was, that's the end of your project. Uh, So we had to withdraw the crew. We had to regroup. We had no ongoing production. And we were lucky, I think, in, in that we had just finished filming Fireball at that time. So we were able to structure a post production for Fireball, which kept if you like, the, the the wheels turning at spring. And we concentrated very much ever since we have been on um, developing a whole new tranche of programs that can go into production this year. So in between a little bit of furlough, in between a little bit of um, post-production sales of one or two of our other projects, we were able to survive and we have now developed a new tranche of programs going forward and we've been commissioned on one series and we have another series um, that's in advanced development and it looks okay for 2021. I'm delighted to hear that. And that was actually going to be my next question was prison, obviously multi-award winning series for channel four. That's I think it's sold in over 80 territories, didn't it? Around, around the world. Can we see a return? 
to Durham Prison at any point in the future, do you think? We've actually developed two new series. One is about uh, juvenile offenders, another one about um, the work of barristers and the, the beginning of the crime way before you go to prison, if you like, the defence. And both of those are at advanced stages. Um, so I think that we'll move into that territory first and we we'll, might catch up on Durham later, but not, not immediately. Before we move on to having a chat with Lilla, you're working on a remarkable project called The Two Lives of Lee Amau. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's a, it's a finished project. It's one of the most moving stories that I've um, come across. And it was, um, it was a feature documentary made by a Chinese director who worked for 15 years with a, a transgender, transsexual kid in, uh, in um, Shenzhen in China. And it's sort of the underbelly of China we don't see anything about. He'd followed the life of this rather warm, wonderful character uh, from, as I say, over 15 years. And it was how somebody starting as a teenager could find their way in a world where they were running into terrible trouble in inside China for what they were doing and what they were, what they felt they were in terms of gender. It's actually unique for me. It's, it's, it gave me an insight into China that I didn't get from any other kind of program and very, very moving. So we, we helped the director who couldn't really make it in China. I mean, he filmed it in China, but we brought everything out and we edited it here in London and finished the film just at the end of last year. You know, for the first time, it's now out on, in the marketplace. So it's, it is an extraordinary film. We'll include a clip in the episode description to the two lives of Lee Amau. Be fascinating to see that. Lilla, coming to you. Welcome to the show. Happy New Year. Thank you. You too. Happy New Year. Yes, exactly. Happy New Year. You're the first production funding and distribution business we've had on the show for a while. Obviously, it's been a tumultuous year in that side of the business, as uh, as in all sides. But congratulations on your growth. Thank you. A 35% year-on-year increase in the recent broadcast distributors survey. How much of that success is down to a rush by buyers for finished content due to COVID? Well, I should probably quantify that obviously those figures are based on there actually are 2019 because we do our counting is from January to December. So those figures are actually for the end of 2019. Right. I'm pleased to say that the figures which haven't been published yet for 2020 are as significant in terms of growth. But we're just, you know, we're finalising all the accounts and what have you. So, yes. So it's it's slightly misleading, that survey always, because some companies are publishing their accounts to April 2020 and others are doing it to December, if you see 19, if you see what I mean. Looking at last year, I mean, we don't want to look back too much from a distribution perspective, we started talking about this at the beginning of Telecast back in April and May last year about, oh, there's going to be a huge rush for finished content and then then there's going to be none left and what is the market going to be doing this spring, for example, when MIP TV might have been taking place. But how did the buying patterns in 2020 differ from a normal year? I mean, it's interesting. The buying patterns definitely did differ 
in terms of the type of content. But I think when we've looked back at 2020 ourselves and tried to kind of analyse how we may have been affected positively or negatively by COVID, I think the conclusion that we've come to is that we weren't as affected quite as much as you might think. And I think that the growth that we saw was as much to do with the fact that, you know, we're approaching our fifth year as an established distribution entity. And I think we've hit our stride. We launched more series last year than we've ever launched before. And so the knock-on effect of that was that we did even more business in North America than we'd done before. I think it was a combination of those things and just a I don't know, a sort of solidifying of, of a lot of the hard work that, that we've put in over the last few years. There was one relatively significant scenario whereby a channel in the US had passed on a series at the beginning of lockdown. And they subsequently came back to us a couple of months later and said, oh, hang on a minute, you haven't still got that, have you? Because actually, due to some filming of something else being cancelled, we'd actually really like it. So yes, of course, I'd be a liar if we didn't see, say we saw some benefit. I can't, who knows, they may have picked it up again in the future for a different reason. So I think there was a bit of that. As you said, Justin, I don't think we saw that massive flurry for acquisitions that most distributors imagined in in the first lockdown. I think we very quickly realised that that naturally channels didn't have this kind of emergency budget that they could dip into in order to fill fill the gaps left behind by all of the cancelled shoots. So what they they naturally did first was to say, well, okay, what have we got that's rating? Is that license coming to an end? Do we need to extend it? You know, can we relicense more episodes? There was much more of that sort of thing going on. And because we're a relatively young business, you know, most of our shows are new. We didn't see the benefit of that as much. The, the fundamental difference was taste in genres. I think we've all seen that and that this, um, this appetite for escapism and feel-good programming. So in terms of buying patterns and in terms of when buyers were making those decisions, because presumably a large percentage or a fair percentage of buyers are working for commercial broadcasters, particularly in the US. And Andre mentioned with Prison and Channel 4, there were the breaks put on lots and lots of projects right across the industry that have been paused or discontinued completely. Did you tend to see that those commercial broadcasters came back into the marketplace later in the year and, and there were a lot of, lot of those decisions made perhaps at times that they wouldn't be? Because obviously MIPCOM also is a, a, often a big factor in the buying patterns. Do we mm. see that people were coming to the table later than they normally would in the year? Our worst months last year, I'm just looking at them, were May and August. And that would kind of make sense, wouldn't it? Interestingly, March, May and August. And our best month was December by a long way. It did feel quiet through the summer. And we definitely felt that only things really started to pick up, you know, November, December time. No doubt about it. Yeah. Okay, and then coming back to content in terms of genres. So escapism and is it travel programming? Is it this sort of experiencing life outside your, our own countries? You know, the best example of it 
for us was Greek Island Odyssey with Bethany Hughes, which is a six-hour series with Bethany traveling through Greece, really in, in, in search of the Odyssey. So it's that lovely mix of sort of archaeology, anthropology, and armchair travel. And you can understand why that hits so many notes for viewers. We were lucky we were working on it anyway. We were expecting it to be delivered. And luckily, you know, they were able to finish the series. Already, we we had channels starting to say that that was the sort of thing that they were looking for, because naturally, a lot of people had had to cancel their trips around the world. So it, it served that whilst at the same time, still suiting our more traditional history viewing audience. You're appearing at next week's Real Screen Virtual Summit on the Meet an Expert panel. We talked about MIPCOM earlier on. How has the lack of events changed things for you over the year? Because uh, Lilla and your uh, your business partner, Ben, are often to be seen at all of the key factual events across the calendar. How has that changed things for you? It's funny. In- initially, it didn't hurt at all. I think there was a sort of, it felt like a bit of a reprieve and we were quite glad to be able to just kind of get our heads down and and, and try to sort of focus on, on what the company was going to be doing amidst the crisis. I think it's really starting to take its toll now and I think we're all feeling that sort of lack of contact. You know, a lot of us use Real Screen as the sort of kickstart to our year and there's something about the discipline of pitching to American broadcasters that really pulls focus. And yes, of course, we're attending it in a virtual environment, but nothing is quite the same as, as, as just that sort of buzz of being in, in, in a shared atmosphere together. We've talked about it as a team as well. I think we're all starting to, to miss that and feel that there's a level of intelligence and information that you're just you're not going to get and just the, and also just those lovely kind of connections that you make with people that you just can't do in a virtual environment. I have to say, as producers, we are desperately missing that tactile, personal communication. You can do things on Zoom, but you you really can't enthuse about projects properly. You can't meet the right people. You can't have that engagement. I think I think we're all suffering sort of um, uh, withdrawal symptoms of not being able to do it anymore. I really feel for the buyers and commissioning editors who, at least when they're at a conference, they're away from the office, preferably in a different time zone, at least for some of them. And so they are able to focus on the meetings themselves and the pitches, whereas at a, at a virtual Zoom conference, as far as their colleagues are concerned, they're still contactable. So it's, it, it, for them, it's a, it's a wholly different experience and not, not necessarily that enjoyable. No, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. How about co-production? Now, obviously, co-production financing is a key part of uh, your business and, and one of the uh, sides of the business that you're, you're best known for internationally. How do you see things from a co-production financing sense developing over 2021? Well, more channels are saying they need co-production than ever before. It's not going away. I think the tricky thing is that kind of connection between what the relative countries and cultures are in need of um, and equally what can be made. You know, obviously filming has improved a lot. And I think in, in the UK market, 
what producers have done is extraordinary. And I think it's a real testament to the incredible creative industry that we have here. Um, It's blown me away, actually. I've been so impressed by the kind of lack of navel gazing going on in the industry here and the and the sort of can do mentality it's it's been amazing i am excited by the solutions that indies are finding to the uh, just endless obstacles that are being put in front of them drive cut its teeth working in in quite sort of blue chip specialist factual shows quite often they would feature a, a, an archaeological dig at a very iconic site it might be in you know in Egypt or, or Pompeii and none of that's happening at the moment so there's there's a certain genre of co-production sort of friendly programs that that just aren't being made at the moment because they can't and so we're having to look at you know different areas in order to satisfy that it's not going away we're still co-producing as much as we we ever have before i would say we're seeing fewer of the kind of big blue chip specials and far more of the long running returnable series which obviously from from a business point of view is great and often they're no more difficult to get off the ground than than a special or a feature dot as i'm sure Andre would agree with but it's going to be an interesting year we're we're already getting the sense that a lot of the money for this year has gone and we're really looking much more into mid 22 on to 23 budget wise andre when it comes to actually producing a show in somewhere like pompeii for example do you see yourself working more and more with local production companies as well i mean do we think that sort of show is going to become more complicated by the number of producers involved in projects as well as the number of broadcasters involved in funding those projects it's a really difficult area because On the one hand, as you've implied, co-production tends to imply complications. You're having to juggle between uh, the needs of the partners um, and the different styles and the different needs of their perhaps broadcasters. On the other hand, it's the lifeblood of producers like us. I mean, we, we do domestic programs that have actually surprised us by selling well internationally, but they are solely spring production, things like Prism. But virtually the, all the rest of the, certainly the theatrical world that I tend to concentrate on, tends to be co-production in some form or another. And partly it's because the British broadcasters cannot afford the kind of budgets that we can put to projects to give them the quality we think they deserve to find that kind of finance sometimes we can do it with a little bit from a british broadcaster and then we go internationally other times we do it the other way around we start on the international circuit and then try and sell them back into the uk but it's co-production that enables us to do that so you know with Werner, for example we always co-produce with his company uh, although we tend to run most of the production other projects a lot of them come out of ideas that are sent to us which we take one look at and realize this is a fantastic idea concept but it usually comes with 
a condition, either a company or a producer or a director or somebody attached, and we will then help shape that and become the co-producers of that. Because we're on a global marketplace, we're looking, I suppose, you know, some people may think it a compromise. I don't, I don't really think it's true. We're looking at projects that work internationally that don't just sell to a, a, a British local audience, but will sell to, you know, Australia, America, um, Europe, whatever as well. So the, the themes tend to be much more international than perhaps we had in the past. Lilla, real screen is obviously an important market for drivers, uh, as you mentioned earlier. What can we expect from your real screen slate? Can you just take us quickly through the highlights? I'm not in a position to give actual specific title details at this point. Quite often when we're working on projects, you know, a channel will not want us to announce too much about them before before they launch. But what I can say is that it's what you'd expect from Drive and more. So it's your your usual kind of access-driven, anniversary-driven blue chip specials, in addition to more returnable history series and science series, plus a few kind of slightly unusual single docs that I think will they'll work better in in the SVOD environment than they would perhaps in a traditional copro linear environment. And again, we're seeing more of that now as well. We're we're working increasingly on projects where we are managing the the sort of project development and the pitch into SVODs for either a global buyout or for a co-production. Well, I wish you all the very best at Real Screen next week. So now it's time for Story of the Week, where my guests get to nominate the most notable TV industry stories from the past seven days. Andre, what's your Story of the Week? Well, I chose the the article that, in fact, was in Real Screen magazine, um, which was Dawn Porter and her analysis of where we are with the documentary at the moment. And if you look at the trajectory of Dawn's career, I knew Dawn uh, when she was before her filmmaking, she was a lawyer in television. And she had always had the aspiration to make very strong, big social commentary films, touching issues such as racism, and she liked using history and so on. And she's made some extraordinary films. Um, and what fascinated me about her analysis was that following her own trajectory, she has gone from big films, which has made several successful Emmy-winning um, films, mainly in, in, on American society. And now she's moved on to an Apple Plus series that is with Prince Harry on the one hand, Oprah Winfrey on the other, Asif Kavidia is working on it, a, a, a television series about mental health. It's a you know one-hour television program. Uh, it's a complete change in process, and I found it fascinating in her article to read the fact that she said, well, if Oprah calls, you come running. Yeah. And that's why she's moved in that direction. But it it does give an indication, I think, of what both Lily and I have been saying about that move to the big streamers and the the um, the apples of this world that they're they're looking for new things and they're attracting people from one end of the business to the other in order to make them substantial and hope that a world audience will like them. 
So as the subjects and the issues get bigger that a lot of filmmakers are, are now able to make, but also the celebrity and the talent involvement is is getting bigger as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Lilla, how about you? What's your story of the week? My story feels a bit ridiculous in comparison to that because that's a very inspiring one. In the fog of just homeschooling and just January blues, I'm afraid, I'm not sure I absorbed very much, but the one thing that stood out to me was the image of, or the footage, I should say, of Matt Hancock, the health secretary, doing a Zoom broadcast from what was clearly his downstairs lab. It leads on to my hero of the week, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it, to me, it just illustrated the the insanity of where we've got to. And and it just said so much. Um, and the fact that, you know, he couldn't even actually come out and admit to it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it just, it, I think it will become a kind of a bit of a metaphor for, for this time. Yeah. And this is his red room, isn't it? It's the yeah. it's the room that if you look in the background, there's actually a cricket ball. There's actually, I think, a, a parliamentary briefcase, the, the red box in there as well. It's a classic public school thing. You put all your school photos and certificates in, in the downstairs bog. <laughs> Well, we'll put a link to that photo as well, or that image for uh, for everybody to have a look at in the episode description. And now it's time to hear my guest hero of the week and who or what they want to tell to get in the bin. Lilla, who's your hero of the week? So, as I said, it's slightly linked to the Mac Hancock story, and it's Alex Mahon who published on on LinkedIn her sort of open letter to staff at the beginning of last week, and it really, I think, for a lot of us, it just reflected how we we were all feeling. Um, and I thought it was a, a fantastic example of, of of you know leadership from the top. In essence, she was saying we all need to recognize that we are all struggling in this time. It's incredibly difficult. We're facing so many challenges on a daily basis and we need to cut ourselves a bit of slack. So we've instated, I think, hour and a half lunch breaks every day at Channel 4 from 12.30 till 2 and everybody must take that time out. And we're also having meeting-free Fridays. I think it it just echoed with so much of what, probably all of us have been saying to each other, to our friends, our families, and so on and so forth, that it is, it does all feel quite relentless. And even though we're all at home, the irony is I think we're all working harder than we've ever worked before. So yeah, I thought it was just a, a great example. Absolutely. And as you say, actually, Alex Mahon has really, I think, over the last year, demonstrated real leadership that we don't often see from senior TV executives in big broadcasters, to be honest. We, we we don't really get a sense of humanity. Yeah. And them as individuals and how they're how they're leading and taking their organizations forward. Mm. And it's this sort of time that you really see that leadership coming forward. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. I thought that was fantastic when I saw that uh, that piece from Alex Mann. And how about your get in the bin? Who are you who are you chucking in the bin, Lilla? Or what are you chucking in the bin? It's the last episode of the Pembrokeshire Murders. <laughs> right. I was gripped for the first two. And, you know, we've obviously been spoiled with a, a, an inordinate amount of fantastic television over the last year. I just felt that the final episode in what was a very well-produced miniseries 
was I felt very shortchanged and it felt rushed. And I thought, why why didn't they make this a four-hour series? Because the, the material was there. All the momentum was lost. And, and I know I'm not alone. I've had this discussion with quite a few people. It just felt all the kind of nitty-gritty fact that would have been available to them around the actual court case itself and the interrogation of of the main perpetrator and all of that it just sort of didn't happen it felt like the final episode was on fast forward and I suppose we've all become accustomed now to these fantastic true crime documentary series whether they be on Netflix or elsewhere that we're quite sophisticated on our crime viewing and I really feel they missed a trick uh, do you think that's as a result of the pandemic? Do you think it's literally production-based uh, shortchanging, if you like? No, I don't know, and I would love to know because I couldn't work it out because I thought it's ITV. They probably would have had the budget to go to four eps. Clearly the material was there. You know, they commissioned a documentary hour afterwards off the back of it. So it just seemed, yeah, I, I, I would love to know. Well, let's find out. Let's uh, If anybody does know that, uh, do let us know and be fascinated to find out. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to be seeing more and more of these longer episode series cut down quite significantly. And we've seen a little bit of that, particularly in the, in the drama space as well. So, Andre, how about you? Who's your hero of the week? Both my hero and my bin are... Um larger-than-life characters. My um, hero of the week is uh, also tragic. It's a posthumous one, and it goes to Mike Apted, who I worked with and commissioned and I thought was a wonderful documentarian. He did some pretty good feature films as well, but it was his documentary end that I knew best. Uh, And he made a couple of films for me when I was running the Fine Cut series at the BBC. He's sadly, sadly missed. He was a hero and remains so. And on the other end of the spectrum, another larger-than-life character is um, also died this week, is Phil Spector. Uh, and I would recommend uh, Vikram Jayanti's film, The Agony and Ecstasy of Phil Spector, which in 2013, which is a, a remarkable film that gave more psychological insight into Phil Spector than anything else I've seen. It's part of that battle about how heroic should we regard people because of their creativity when clearly Phil Spector was a nasty piece of work. Funny enough, I thought about putting him in the bin. And I think it's really interesting, Andre, you're right, that that, that whole discussion around ultimately what is more important as a human, is it to be a decent human being or a genius? Mm, how, yeah. how are we remembered? And it's interesting to see the way that the press has actually covered and described Phil Spector as well. There's been a a real range of attitudes in terms of the media coverage. Now, one last question for you both. One quick question before I let you go. We did some future gazing around big media and scripted a couple of weeks ago in a first show of 2021. But we've saved our 2021 unscripted predictions for this week's telecast. So short prediction for blue chip feature documentaries in 2021. Andre, how do you see it playing out this year? I'm a huge optimist on this, that you look at what's been put in for the BAFTAs, for the non-fiction, for example, there's 70, more than 70 titles of documentaries up there. 
I'm not sure they're all great, um, and I think, so quality is always a question. But there is a demand, and there is a huge production going on. I think around the world, I think we're going to see a huge number of very serious documentaries. Um, I think people are tackling all the issues that we probably been rightly wrapped over the knuckles for not doing um, and they're all coming at the same time so we're going to see a lot on colonialism on racism on gender etc etc but we're going to see a lot of them um, so I think it's very much an expanding business and 2021 we'll see a lot of uh, activity around the world on it. Lilla what do you see 2021 bringing in terms of the overall unscripted marketplace when it comes to buying and selling? To be honest, I think there's the, the latter part of, of, of what Andre was saying will be the same for us as well. We're, we're already hearing it from our buyers that whether it be revisionist history or just covering aspects of society that normally hasn't hasn't had a platform, there's definitely an appetite for that, without a doubt. And a lot of that being, is being driven out of North America. I think, you know, for a company that has worked so extensively in history and, and has been involved so many times in, in, in the same story, whether it be Titanic or Hindenburg or what have you told over and over again, it's really exciting to think that there are going to be stories that we can work on this year that have not been told in, in television terms before. So I think we're excited about that and the opportunities that might be opening up there. And then next to that, I think it will be more of the same. So I think that that continued appetite for uh, sort of adventure, travel, escapism, and I suppose warmth is equally going to be there. But interestingly, I do think it will be contrasted with uh, some some in-depth exploration of some very serious issues. It sounds like it could be a classic year for uh, unscripted production and distribution hopefully so Lilla Andre thank you so much for joining me this week really enjoyed our discussion I wish you all the very best for 2021 and look forward to seeing you again in person very soon so we've focused on discussing the TV industry with executives so far on telecast but as we all know on-screen talent is crucial to the success of any show unscripted or scripted So I thought it's about time we spoke to somebody in front of the camera for a change. And I'm delighted to welcome Jason Fox from SAS Who Dares Wins onto the show. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? Hi, Justin. How's it going? Uh, Thanks for having me on. Should I call you Jason or Foxy? Basically, I always have this drama with with people because... I, I've always been known as Foxy when I was back in the military. In fact, I've always been known as Foxy since I was a small child. But um, nowadays, when I sort of introduce myself as Foxy, sometimes you see grown men wince at the thought of having to call another grown man Foxy. So I leave it up to the discretion of the individual. So it's up to you. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm easy either way. Being a big fan of the show, SAS Who Dares Win, I feel I should probably call you Staff. <laughs> no, no, you don't need to do that. So I'm sure all our listeners are familiar with the Channel 4 show, which is produced by Minnow Films. But for those perhaps internationally where the show hasn't reached yet, can you just briefly describe SAS Who Dares Wins for us? I suppose it is a reality show. It actually sits in the specialist factual at Channel 4 within their genres. But it's, it's essentially... 
there's four of us. We're uh, there's four DS directing staff, and we are ex special forces, and we are the instructors on the course, and we take a handful of what is essentially general public that applied to come on, and we put them through a course that is about twelve days long. And it's all about seeing whether they've got the minerals, whether they've got the fundamental building blocks to maybe sort of one day, if they ever thought about it, be good enough to join the special forces. For me, I remember actually seeing this show first introduced by Jay Hunt back at Edinburgh Festival before season one came out years ago. Mm. And I always thought, you know, this sort of show, you know, having read a bit about the SAS in the past and knowing what an incredible institution it is for a reality show to be made of it as we all know behind you know behind the scenes sometimes reality shows aren't as real as they might be yeah but obviously the SAS is you know it has to be completely real and for for you guys to be involved with it so is was there ever any sort of trade-offs that you had to sort of consider when building the course and building the how the how the show was actually going to work in terms of different aspects and rounds that that contestants had to go through yeah there is there is a little bit of trade-off because ultimately the course that myself and the other guys have done in real life in real life you know it as in for real is is nine months long and you know we're, we're trying to condense that into essentially what is nearly two weeks so we've basically had to ramp things up in some aspects and then also tone it down in others. And we try and basically put, put the content well, we call them recruits, but we put the contestants, the contribs, whatever you want to call them under the same sort of pressures that we would experience on selection. Then we throw in a few iconic tasks along the way to keep it on track, if that makes sense. So we're constrained by time and TV is all about time. As far as I'm, really concerned on this one because it's like right we've got to get this got to get this got to get this you know we need to condense it we can't film for nine months because there's no budget for that and so on and so forth so there's a lot of to and fro in the in the development of each series about what we can and can't do and what we can get away with and how we can make it authentic and we do we do do a very good job i mean the minnow do a very good job of keeping it authentic and allowing us to the time and the space to do what we need to do. Well, you can actually see that, I think, and that's obviously reflected in the success of the show, which is now five seasons in, and you're, I think you're recruiting for the sixth season now. Is that right? I think, actually, we're we're six. We've done season six, and we've also done season three of the celebrity one. They're in edit now. So that they, I think TX is somewhere in the near couple of months for season six of the civilian version. Brilliant. Oh, well, that's something that's going to get me through lockdown. I can't wait for that to... Uh... They've pushed the TX for good reason. Coming from your background, which is, you know, an incredibly stressful military background where you've seen service, and I think you were in the in the service since 16, right, in the Royal, Royal Marines and then going through to Special Forces? Yeah, that's right, yeah. You know, coming into the world of TV from your background how did you find it to begin with I mean how, how did you find working with a TV crew for the first time so I left the military in 2012 I had a I had a bit of a struggle uh with mental health because that's I mean I, I got medically discharged for for PTSD so post-traumatic right. stress disorder so I was I was sort of 
struggling with what a civilian is supposed to look like and do. And I dabbled in a corporate job, which I didn't enjoy. And then ended up leaving, bit the bullet, went into security, which is what most people from that, from my background default into. And then work was pretty scarce on the ground. It was, there was a bit of a slump in the oil prices at the time. And a lot of the, the business there came from the, that industry. Mm. So I was scratching, I was actually, I was, I was in quite a bad place financially and sort of like personally. And, um, it was actually a friend of mine, a guy called Aldo Kane, who um, had a he has still has a company called Vertical Planet, and he basically delivers the safety side of things for TV crews that travel around the world to all these weird and wonderful places you get to go to. And he actually turned around and said, "Mate, I've got a, I've got, a, I've got too much work on. Can you cover for me for a job that's coming up? It's out in uh, Madagascar." And I was like, "Mate, I'd love to." So I basically went out on that job as behind the camera as you know my role was behind the camera I was basically the team medic and also the underwater cameraman's dive buddy I ended up doing that that was for actually for October films did all right we we were basically filming or they the crew were filming these four crazy underwater archaeologist guys that were experts on pirates and they were searching for lost antiquities that the pirates had scuttled away on their ships and their wrecks and whilst we were on that we found myself and the and the the sp who was doubled up as the underwater cameraman found a massive lump of silver that, and i got a sort of my my name was sort of banded around a few people and that was my actual first intro to tv crews and, and working in that industry which is only a few months prior to to um the sas gig tv production as we know is a lot of standing around there's a lot of waiting around waiting for the take waiting for resetting etc interruptions multiple takes coming from the military obviously everything's about precision everything's about you know life and death operations but working in tv it must be must be frustrating to work with within that environment when you've got you know somebody standing in front of the camera or so a light goes out or something like that and you're having to reset the whole thing i mean did did you did you find that easy to adjust to when you were coming into SAS Who Dares Wins? It's not dissimilar to life in the Special Forces. There is a, a lot of hurry up and wait, and then you get all excited, and then you stop again, and you're waiting for the decision to go, and then it might not happen at all, and then it comes back round. So to be honest, the environment's not that dissimilar. Okay, there's bullets flying around on the other one, but I didn't I did take to it quite quickly. I think all four of us did. And one of the reasons I, I actually did an in, one of my master interviews for the show where we do the pieces to camera, yeah. We, we like, as everyone will know, a lot of that is just, we did hours and hours of interview talking to camera, you know, being interviewed by each director or whoever it was that was doing that interview. We'd actually finished filming the first series. We were still on location, and I had to finish off. I had to do like a two-hour interview master interview with um a guy called alex keel who was the the uh, series i think he was the series director so we're just chatting and it was just a conversation a chat where he'd throw in a few of the questions that he wanted answering and, and at the very end of that interview he said oh mate what you know what do you think of this what now that we've done it what what do you think what what are we like you know and i think he was like well, what are we like compared to your lot and i was like i had a bit of a think and i was like do you know what mate i says 
if what I'm about to say might sort of unsettle you, but I says, I've, it's like a home from home. I says, I said, you guys, you, you, you all on the crew are fundamentally the same as special forces operators. And he was like, what, what, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you all want to be busy. You want a million different things going on at once to keep you busy. You've got, you've got a vision of how things should be. You work really, really hard. You know, the hours that I've seen everyone put in is just mental and you're perfectionists. And then ultimately at the back end of that, when you get a chance to let your hair down, you let your hair down properly. I says, it's, it's, we're exactly the same people. We've just got different jobs. That's all. And I, I genuinely still believe that to this day. I, I really enjoy working in this industry because of the people that it attracts and, and their work ethic and, and their want to deliver something on another level. You also featured in Meet the Drug Lords inside the Real Narcos yeah. uh, as well. Again, tell us a little bit about that. I think that's all, that was again Channel 4, but I think that's on Netflix now. It's on Netflix now, yeah. It did, did Channel 4 and then um, it was done with Plum Pictures and then they they secured the deal with Netflix um, after. But that, that came about, Plum developed it and then they came to me and and said right this is that this is what our idea is we're going to pitch it to the channel and it was essentially i can't in fact actually it's working title at the beginning was miami vice and the and the and the concept was i was going to be put up in miami and hang out in miami for a month or so and hang out with drug dealers and you know get into the the dark underworld of miami but also then see the the sort of law enforcement side and i was like mate that sounds awesome i'm a hundred percent in for that <laughs> and obviously it sort of gets commissioned and then everyone's like all oh, right we need to change this and it needs to look somewhat different and then they i co go back in for another meeting and they're like right it's sort of changed a little bit and i was like all right okay how's that and they said well now what what what's going to happen is you're going to go to peru colombia and mexico and live in the weeds with the cartels and i was like <laughs> they fought up plenty a little bit <laughs> You were you were thinking of the speedboat and the, yeah, the Don Johnson shades and all of that. Crockett and Tubbs or whatever their names are. I was like, ah, this is gonna be glamorous as anything. I'll be on like Miami Beach, you know, hanging out with some cool kids and no, it wasn't to be. It went it went rustic and more in depth. And I'm glad it did. It was yeah, it was an amazing experience. You were part of a crew of four, I think I'm right in saying. So they were they were it was just a very tight production. Yeah. And presumably you got much more involved in the hands-on making of the show than perhaps SAS Who Dares wins. So you were you were kind of there embedded and, and a, a crucial part yeah. of the production team as well as being talent in front of the screen as well. Yeah, I did. I mean there was I mean there was the four of us that were in country. Um there was there was a bit behind the scenes obviously obviously the development put in a, a load of time and effort my my missus actually was a producer on it and she did all the story and the access and digging deep into finding the right characters to to follow up on and then once we got out there is it was a lot more hands-on for me i think i got a consultant producer credit just because there was so much going on and everyone had to get hands-on and dirty and i'm glad that was the case because i learned so much more about what was needed, you know, the communications between being out there and on the grounds, the security implications. I mean, that was my main reason I got involved a little bit at the beginning was obviously the security side. I was pretty all over and I wanted to have a handle on that. 
but yeah it was you know it was all hands to bathe and it was it I made what an amazing learning experience that was anyway well we'll we'll put a, a link to both SES who dares wins and meet the drug lords in the episode description of this show so everyone can go and check them out what about the promotional side of things so obviously being talent now so you are now tv talent officially tv talent and what about the promotional side of things because obviously there's the making of the show then there's you know it goes into edit as you know it spent takes months and then all of a sudden you're on camera again but promoting the show how 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 do you deal with that do you are you are you happy to do promotional stuff like this conversation for example i mean it was odd to begin with you know especially it was a brand new world you know finishing series one of sas and then you know, the channel were then pulling us in and saying, you need to be media trained. And I was like, what the hell, you know, how to conduct yourself in front of journalists. And and it was a bit, you know, it's, you know, we had this lady up at Channel 4 that was teaching, you know, she sort of like put together a, an interview as if she was a journalist interviewing us, didn't teach us anything, and then just literally allowed us to say what we'd normally say and then ripped us apart and said, no, you can't say that, this can see me. And so that was a learning curve. But, yeah, I, I don't mind it. I quite enjoy it. I like it it gives you time to reflect on what you've done as well. So instead of, instead of me thinking, oh, it's just a me banging on again, I'm, I use it as an opportunity to look back on what we've done and enjoy it a bit more as well. Cause I think sometimes mm. you'll do something, move on, not really look at it. And you're like, okay, yeah, I, I was part of that. But now I like, like talking to you now and I'm talking about narcos and SAS, it, it, you know, I'm reflecting now and I'm like, yeah, that was, I mean, they're, they're all amazing experiences and, it's good to remember them sometimes. So the the promo side of it's quite. I find it enjoyable. I, I don't mind. So I gather you've also recently appeared on Amazing War Stories, the podcast that's been produced by I think it says here TV legend Ed Sayer. Um, <laughs> he write that himself. Oh yeah, always. He yeah, he always does. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's a fascinating project in its own right. That episode was all about a military operation in the second world war around christmas time wasn't it that's right yeah it was a commando a classic commando raid as they say when you're from that world it actually started off as asking me to do a, you know put a little bit of amazing war stories out on my channels obviously with the link to the military and i asked what it was about and he said you know it's all about raising awareness of a lot of military museums around the the country that are sort of falling by the wayside because of the the drama that we're all in at the moment it was just to raise a bit of awareness of history and some interesting stories and I listened to the one that he'd sent me with Bruce Crompton and I was blown away like the you know the 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 detail that's put into it and the way it's produced and created is awesome you know the 3D audio and all that sort of stuff and it's really fascinating stuff so I was like yeah yeah I love it and then he asked if I wanted to get involved in that that one at Christmas which is I was, yeah, jumped at the chance. It was a great, great thing to be a part of. It is uh, fascinating the way that podcasts are getting involved in in TV development and becoming a, a real development platform now for TV shows, both scripted and unscripted. Yeah. Um, how about you in terms of other ambitions in TV? Are there any are there any projects that you've thought about? You think, oh, I would love to do that. I mean, I would love to go here. Or do... I got asked that question after Narcos aired, and. The question was asked me by um, Ian Katz, who, who had then taken Jay, Jay, over Jay Hunt's position at the channel. And I actually said to him, oh, I'd love to go back to Afghanistan. And 
two weeks later, they bloody commissioned a show of me going back to Afghanistan, which so I need to be careful what I say here because I could end up stitching myself up. <laughs> but ultimately, there's loads. You know, I'd love to. I'd love to do more along the lines of the narco stuff because that was fascinating. But I'll tell you what has transpired from the war, the amazing war stories journey is. I'd love that to become something that because I'm fascinated with the old military history and there's some amazing stories out there that can be told. So I wouldn't mind something along those sort of lines, something a bit more historic with regard to like storytelling and, and bringing it more to life, I suppose. So what I can gather through watching the SAS show is that that's all about mental resilience as much, if not more so than physical strength and, uh, and, and resilience. So we're all locked away at home right now. I won't say like hostages, but perhaps it's it's a bit more like being in an open prison. <laughs> Have you got any tips for us to get through this? You know, people that might be struggling a bit. Um, anything that you know that we can think of to sort of uh, fortify us and and look towards the springtime and hopefully get once we get out of all of this. I think yeah, it's quite a difficult question, but ultimately it's about spending a little bit more time in the now. I know the now might seem a bit gloomy, but it's there's still stuff to enjoy. You know, we're still living. And so I suppose some of it is not to not to dwell on the last 12 months because there's no point. They're, they're done. We're not changing them. Be a little bit more present in the now and look forward to the future because the t- tough times don't last forever. You know, life is a bit of a roller coaster. This is, this is, will be seen as a low point, but we'll bounce back. We're humans. We, we adapt very well. And when we do bounce back, there's going to be a lot to be done and a lot to be excited about. So the biggest takeaway is, is that positive attitude. I'll always try and keep a positive attitude. I was taught it as a young soldier and I'll keep keep that in mind going forward. And hopefully I'll be like that forever. And I hope everyone else can adopt that sort of mindset because it does get you through the tough times. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on Telecast. Really enjoyed chatting. Best of luck with everything. We'll see you on screen on SAS Who Dares Wins Season 6 in the not-too-distant future and uh, and hopefully other projects in the future as well. So great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks very much, Justin. Really enjoyed it. So no Real Screen Summit special would be complete without editor and content director of Real Screen magazine, Barry Walsh. How are you doing, Barry? Happy New Year. Very well, Justin. How are you? Really good. Really looking forward to the summit, which uh, kicks off in a virtual sense, this coming Monday. Can you take us through a brief sense of the highlights from the event this year? This is the first year as a virtual event for the summit. And uh, while the pandemic made sure we couldn't travel, on the bright side, it also made sure that some really big name talent out there can't travel either. So we're able to get them as keynotes. Uh, We have Hillary Rodham Clinton and Chelsea Clinton giving their first big interview about their new production venture with Sam Branson, uh, Hidden Light Productions. And they're really going to get into detail about what they're looking to do with the company, the projects they're looking to get behind, and the partnerships they're keen to explore. Uh, We also have Ken Burns and Len Novick, giants in the documentary space, talking about their upcoming project, Hemingway among other things. Um, On the buyer's front, we have Suzanne Daniels, the global head of originals for YouTube. We have Rob Sharonow, the president of programming for A&E Networks, uh, both of them doing keynotes. Uh, We have Wayne Brady. He is a uh, host of several unscripted series uh, in North America here and is a true multi-hyphenate. And he's talking about how he's married a spirit of improvisation and inclusion to create his path in business. Um, We have a really great session 
featuring women filmmakers, including Don Porter, uh, Julie Cohen, Betsy West, Garrett Bradley, Kirsten Johnson. Uh, we're really looking forward to that. We have several sessions exploring how to create a truly diverse and inclusive work environment, why it's good for your business and your content. Uh, we have Nancy Daniels from Discovery and other executives behind Discovery Plus telling us more about that new service. Uh, we've got sessions on international co-production, best practices in conducting business during these uh, extremely strange times. Uh, so all in all, I'd say it's probably one of the best years for content, if not the best, thanks to the input from our advisory board who helped us put the agenda together and the speakers that we've been able to work with. That's a bit of a stellar lineup there. As well as the agenda, the, the social aspect of Real Screen Summit is always super important for delegates. Obviously, you can't represent the dinners and the drinks with friends and colleagues that we all enjoy so much. But how are you able to bring delegates together in the virtual edition? You are encouraged if you're attending to, uh, you know, bring your dinner and your drinks uh, while you're while you're hanging out with people. You're certainly encouraged to do that, um, sitting in front of the computer. But we we do have a delegate lounge that allows for uh, chance meetings, uh, as well as those that may be already set up. Um, we have several speed networking sessions that are designed to promote new business connections, as, as well as all the structured networking sessions that define our live events, like uh, 30 Minutes With, speed networking, speed pitching. Um, we've been really working hard to bring those into the online environment. And I think people who will be taking part will will see that the, the platform that is being used uh, it was really developed with um, networking and meeting and ease of doing both in mind. So uh, we, we also have uh, our partners at A&E Networks uh, hosting a virtual opening reception on Monday at 5 p.m. EST, and the details about that are still being finalized, but um, it should be a lot of fun. I'm sure it's going to be a fantastic event. It always is. I always really enjoy real screen. So before you go, Barry, can you give us your big predictions for the unscripted space in 2021? We spoke to Andre and Lilla earlier on in the show, and they gave us their tips for the year. What do you see as being one of the key trends in unscripted in the year ahead? Uh, I can take a look from uh, both a business and a content perspective. Uh, on the business front, I think you're going to definitely see more executive upheaval on the major media company side as everybody's continuing to move to a streaming first operational mentality. We can't count out the potential for more huge mergers and acquisitions. A lot of people are talking about Warner Media and NBC Universal possibly tying up. That could happen. And all these executive shakeups and restructuring efforts are going to have an impact on how programming is commissioned and, of course, who's doing the commissioning. You know, you're going to see more, I think, uh, traditional, quote-unquote, traditional media moving into the streaming space. It'll be interesting to see how people or the the services on that side separate themselves from the big guns. Uh, meanwhile, the established streamers like the Netflixes and Amazons and Hulus and the big new entries like the Disney Pluses and HBO Max, they're going to continue to ramp up their unscripted efforts because it's now paying off. Um, the producers I've talked to have said that the streamers are absolutely rabid for content. Their subscriptions and their shareholder investment depends on fresh pipelines. So the onus is really going to be on producers to create content that works for these brands, but that can be produced well 
under the conditions that we're, are still going to exist for the immediate future. And, and I think that's another major thing that's going to be happening over 2021. The pandemic isn't over. Everyone is still contending with the cost element. And I think there's going to be more discussion and perhaps some heated discussion about how to share that load with buyers. Um, from a content perspective, everybody I've talked to has been, you know, repeating the feel-good content mantra. Light entertainment will have an extended run in the sun, I think, due to the horrible year that everybody's just had. I think it's not just about the pandemic, but it's also about a very fractious few years in terms of the sociopolitical landscape. I don't think people are going to want to be hit over the head with agenda-driven content on the unscripted uh, and nonfiction side. I think polemic might fall short. I think producers who want to tackle the big issues are going to need to balance the bitter medicine with entertainment value. Um, and, and that's always a consideration, but I think especially after the past year and even perhaps the past four years, people are going to want to have a little bit of a smoother ride in terms of their content. And lastly, I mean, when I think about creative industries that have exploded over the past year, the gaming business can't really be ignored. It makes sense, given that we've all been locked down for the bulk of the year, that gaming would explode. So I would expect to see more unscripted companies, perhaps more producers, perhaps even more networks looking for ways into that space through partnerships, format approaches. I mean, will that be a genre that's tailor-made for short form? Perhaps. I would expect to see more efforts for link-up in that area. Thank you, Barry. That's all really interesting stuff, and we'll see how that plays out over the coming 12 months. And for anybody who hasn't signed up to the Riz Green Summit so far, we have got a promo code, which is specific to telecast listeners, and we'll feature that in the episode description, which does get you $200 off the delegate fee. Um, and that's applicable right until the event starts on Monday. Go and have a look at that. If you haven't registered, please do so. Barry, thank you again for coming on. Wish you all the very best with the summit this week. All the best. We'll speak to you very soon. All right. Thank you so much, Justin. Cheers. Well, that's about it for this week's show. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show and share it with friends and colleagues. And don't forget to sign up for our new free newsletter called Telecast Plus. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week you may have missed, exclusive insight and opinion, and the secret producer, our real-life exec who reports anonymously from the front line of TV production. It's all completely free, and we aim to make it the best thing in your inbox every Friday. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. That's telecast-podcast.com. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers. Until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.